Since the 1970s, Brown's portrait has been better painted and his place in American history reassessed in several valuable biographies and one fine novel, Russell Banks's Cloud Splitter. But historical novels select episodes and invent or alter characters and circumstances to achieve their creative designs. While scholarly convention limits the ability of biographers to dramatize the thoughts and feelings, the lived experience of historical actors. Accordingly, even in such detailed and admiring non-fiction accounts as David Reynolds's recent John Brown Abolitionist, which appeared as I was completing this manuscript, Brown remains somewhat abstract and alien, an icon rather than a pebble but still a stone. This book is a work of non-fiction. Every scene, circumstance, action, and person I represent here is drawn in accordance with the available historical record. But there are crucial moments and passages in the historical story of John Brown to which the available record provides only a map, not a key. To enter into these moments and passages to understand them more intimately, and to convey their living drama, I sometimes visualize the undescribed sensory and emotional particulars, and imagine the unpreserved words, thoughts, and motives that animated them. In these instances, I derive the voices, ideas, and feelings of the historical actors as closely as possible from surviving letters and from contemporary third-person accounts of their character and style. In July of 1846, the writer and naturalist Henry David Thoreau was arrested and jailed in Concord, Massachusetts, for refusing to pay his $1.50 poll tax. Thoreau committed his act of civil disobedience to protest his country's first foreign imperialist campaign, the Mexican War and its ever more extensive, brutal, and complacent use of black slave labor at home. Thoreau also meant his gesture to challenge the idea that government was a great impersonal machine, the operations of which individual citizens could not affect and were not responsible for. Peaceful mass resistance by a citizenry that refused to accept its government's commission of unconscionable acts in its name could stop the machine— and achieve a bloodless revolution, he argued in his greatest essay, Civil Disobedience. Yet, even suppose blood should flow. Is there not a sort of blood shed when the conscience is wounded? Through this wound, a man's real manhood and immortality flow out, and he bleeds to an everlasting death. I see this blood flowing now. Fourteen years later, during a memorial service at John Brown's gravesite on July 4, 1860, Thoreau returned to this theme of the life and death of conscience in recalling his first thought upon learning of Brown's execution. Of all the men who were said to be my contemporaries, it seemed to me that John Brown was the only one who had not died. This book tells the story of John Brown of where he lived and what he lived for, and of why, though his body molders, he lives on. Prologue The Dawn's Early Light 
Was John Brown simply an episode, or was he an eternal truth? W. E. B. Du Bois Lieutenant Jeb Stewart of the 1st United States Cavalry crossed the yard of the Harper's Ferry Armory and approached the thick oak door of the engine house under a flag of truce. He felt eyes on his back. In the gray first light of the raw morning of October 18, 1859, Stewart could make out the muzzles of two rifles protruding from gun holes that appeared to have been hastily chiseled through the engine-house wall. He doubted that he had much to fear from the incompetent band of northerners and negroes trapped in the small building in front of him, fanatical haters of the southern system of labor that was protected by the country's laws and enshrined in its traditions. He was at greater risk, he thought wryly, from the unsteady hands and judgment of his fellow Virginians who perched on the railroad trestle and the water tower and in every window of the hotel to his rear. Drawn by the chilling news that white men in league with blacks had overrun the armory at Harper's Ferry and taken possession of its hundred thousand rifles and muskets, local militia companies and curious citizens from across the region had rushed to the snug commercial town throughout the preceding day and night. Harper's Ferry, Virginia, nestled at the tip of the peninsula bounded by the converging Shenandoah and Potomac rivers. Their churning waters formed a gateway to the Shenandoah Valley, which unfolded to the south. From its main street, lined with shops and government offices, the town ascended into the lush foothills of the Blue Ridge, finally reaching the Bolivar Heights Plateau. Tidy and scenic as a Swiss mountain village, Harper's Ferry seemed an idyll of quiet and peace. But it was not. At least, not this morning. Stewart estimated that two thousand citizens, frenzied, sleepless, intoxicated, and armed, thronged doorways, windows, and rooftops, and lined both river banks, surrounding the armory complex. The wall and the high-arched doors of the engine-house were already pocked and splintered by their buckshot and pistol balls. It was not the watery sun struggling to crest the soaring Maryland heights that warmed his cheek and neck as he advanced, but those grim stairs, hot with outrage, heavy with fear. Only the appraisal of one pair of eyes, however, mattered to the twenty-six-year-old steward. Those belonged to Colonel Robert E. Lee, the superintendent of West Point during Stewart's term there as a cadet five years before, and, by sheer good fortune, his commanding officer again today in the business of suppressing these traitors. Lee surveyed his messenger's progress from a patch of raised ground thirty yards away. He wore civilian clothes, but his bearing and his calm, steady gaze were sufficient signs of his authority. On leave from his Texas command, Lee had been summoned less than twenty hours ago to an emergency meeting at the White House, and dispatched by President Buchanan to put down an astonishing traitorous attack on one of the United States military's principal installations. The institution of slavery had been a matter of contention between representatives of the northern and southern states since the nation's founding. But in the 1850s, 
the bitterness and violence reached unprecedented levels. The reasons were many. The Founding Fathers, devoted to the immediate task of securing the young country's economic and political viability and protecting it against threats from outside, had taken steps to defuse and defer the internal debate over slavery. Most had assumed that slavery was a temporary feature of the American social and economic landscape, a necessary evil that would gradually diminish. In 1808, Congress did outlaw the transatlantic slave trade, limiting the slave population to natural increase alone. Yet the population of enslaved blacks continued to grow, as did the reliance of the Southern economy upon slavery. In 1820, Congress passed the Missouri Compromise, which, accepting the new slave state of Missouri, limited the institution's future spread to territories below that state's southern border. But in the 1830s and 1840s, economic instability and waves of job-seeking European immigrants led to heightened concern that slavery was depressing wages and limiting opportunity for whites. During these same decades, the southern cotton economy expanded in scope and profitability, producing a new generation of political leaders, whose unapologetic commitment to slavery and growing power in Washington prompted some northern politicians to take a more active anti-slavery stance. Industrialization in the North ushered in an era of religious revival and social reform movements, which increased moral opposition to slavery among churchgoers and intellectuals. Most significant, however, was the opening of...